Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old and make the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Morning everybody. Let me move this over here, slightly more central. Wasn't that time of singing just incredible? Oh my word. I found it incredible, anyway. Um, so this is actually my first time, well, apart from this morning, um, and actually I'm not quite sure if there's any voice there, Let, we'll, we'll find out over time. Um, but this is the first time I'm preaching in the morning service. So I've, I've preached a number of times over the past 10 years or so, uh, but always in the evening service. And all of a sudden, it feels particularly, actually particularly this service, there's a lot more people here than than before, it suddenly feels like the stakes are much higher. Um, But this hasn't been the easiest talk to prepare. Of all the the ones I've done, this hasn't been the easiest. Um, Firstly, the entire week I've had to to abstain from watching Love Island to give me time to prepare. (laughs) Don't pretend you don't watch it. I know know a lot of you do. I only watch it because Hannah makes me. Um, but the second reason I've, I've found this tricky is it's, it's a passage I've never quite understood. I've never quite understood it. And when Eddie gave me the passage and I saw 23rd of June, wineskins, I thought, oh no, Eddie, why have you given this to me? Um, I wonder how many of us are in a similar boat. In fact, I know some are because after the, the 9.15 service, people came up to me and said, I've never understood that passage either. But let me say this, Mark, in here, Mark's Gospel is an incredible book. It's an incredible book. And the passage that we're going to talk about today is surprisingly exciting and challenging. It was a surprise to me. But I don't know how familiar you are with Mark's Gospel. For me, it's the book that I go back to. Just to remind me why I'm a Christian. It's the book that I go back to. Whether it's because I'm going through a time of doubt, or the pressures and stresses of life are just causing me to wobble a little bit, or I feel like I'm losing sight of things, Mark is where I go to. It's where I come back to. Why? Because what you're confronted with in Mark is a real person. You're confronted with a person. Someone tangible. It's, it's not filled with complicated spiritual concepts or advice or powerful sayings. No. Instead, you meet the real Jesus. And it also, in what feels like pretty close, intimate quarters, in all his power, in all his fullness, 
but yet also in his simplicity too. You find that in Mark. And it's mesmerising. It's mesmerising. If you get beneath the surface, surface, it's mesmerising. And it's life-changing. I'm not, it's not 100% clear if Mark was with Jesus before he was crucified, whether he was a follower then. But it is, it is quite common thinking that his family home was used in those early days after the crucifixion and into Acts. So he was very much in the mix. He was there. He then goes with Paul and Barnabas on the trip round. I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to say. He goes on the first missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas. Um, but then what's key is later on he becomes Peter's interpreter, his scribe, the one who, who puts down on paper Peter's account, Peter's memories, Peter's vision of Jesus. Peter, probably the closest man to Jesus. The closest man. He is the source of what we find here in Mark. And there were times when Jesus did things in the company of of three of his closest disciples, Peter, James and John, that no one else saw. So there's that that episode, that account, when Jesus raises from death that little girl, Jairus' daughter. He takes with him Peter, James and John into that little room and only they see what happens. In the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples are there, but the three go go on with Jesus. Only they kind of were there. That's what we have in Mark. And so we have what feels and smells and breathes like like an eyewitness account into some of the most intimate situations of Jesus' life. And what's also captivating, and actually this is a good reminder, you should have a little piece of paper with you uh, that gives you a bit of the structure of where I'm going. Hopefully keeps you a little bit interested in not falling asleep. Um, but there, there's a, I put a little kind of diagram on there, because what also is quite captivating about Mark is its structure. So it has two big blocks within it, and almost right bang in the middle in chapter 8, there, there is a, a split. So the first block, Mark talks about Jesus, the supreme king. And in chapter 1, verse 15, which is also another reminder, keep this open if you can, uh, page 1004, 1004 in those Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 15 Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. So Jesus the king is here. And Mark reveals Jesus' supremacy, his authority, his power over disease, death, nature. Remember when he goes out and he calms the storm. He walks on water. The spiritual world, countless times when he commands evil spirits out of people. And sin. Think of the story of the the paralytic, just before this particular story we're looking at. So Jesus the king. And then you have this second big block, the second half, which is all about Jesus, the suffering servant. And right at the start of that section, in chapter 8, verse 31, a shift takes place. Jesus says he began to teach, or Mark says, Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man had to suffer and be killed. So the focus is then on the role that Jesus is going to play dying on the cross as that suffering servant. And there is, there's this increasing sense of movement and momentum towards what's going to take place in Jerusalem. But in between those two big blocks, you have this verse, or this short, intimate episode, just with Peter, quite pivotal, crucial moment, where Jesus says, Peter, who do people say I am? Peter says, 
Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say a prophet. But Peter, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? It's as if sandwiched in between these two key aspects of Jesus' character, his identity, the king and the servant, Mark appeals to the reader to make up their mind. You can't not have an opinion, is what he says. You can't not have an opinion. This is too big. It's too huge. This is life-changing. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you think? And so we arrive in our passage uh, for today in Mark chapter 2. And it's no different from the rest of Mark. Jesus and his identity, who he is, is the headline subject. It's all about who Jesus is. Now, it's a question of fasting that opens up the scene, but the main question is, who is Jesus? Who are you, Jesus? Perhaps as a Pharisee, the question is more like, who do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you think you are? You see, by the time we get to this point, we might be quite early on, but by the time we get here, Jesus has already got everybody talking. Open, open up your Bibles on page, uh, on page 1004 and just look back a page and you'll see as I track through quite quickly. So chapter 1, so verse 21, Jesus drives out a, a, an evil spirit from a man and the spirit says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And people are so amazed. Jesus drives the spirit out and they say, what, what is this? Who is this man? And then in chapter 1 again, verse 29. So Jesus goes to Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, Simon Peter. And again, he makes her better. And everybody hears about it. And so that evening, the whole town gathers outside her door. Imagine you open the door one night, Blackheath. The whole of Blackheath is gathered kind of outside your door, streaming onto the pavement, into the streets. It's balmy, isn't it? It's huge. It's crazy. And then verse 40, Jesus meets a man with leprosy and he makes him better. Quite, quite against the, the, the practices of the time, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the man's skin who had leprosy and he makes him better. So he's got people talking. It's fair to say he's, he's aroused quite a bit of attention. And so everyone's looking for him. Everyone's tearing around the countryside trying to find Jesus and they're all talking about him. And so, of course, the leaders and the teachers get him on their radar. Jesus comes onto the radar for them. And there's there's this steady rise in the next couple of chapters of of the opposition to Jesus. To begin with, it's verbal. So the story of the paralytic at the beginning of chapter 2. Who does Jesus think he is? Claiming to forgive sin. And then you've got Jesus calls Levi, one of his disciples, and he sits down and eats, remember, with tax collectors, sinners. And again, the Pharisees maybe slightly more strongly say, what is Jesus doing? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And then it culminates with two accounts on the Sabbath where the Pharisees challenge Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you doing? You're not meant to do things on the Sabbath. And Jesus says the Sabbath was made to serve as man not vice versa. Bang. Suddenly, the Pharisees and the leaders are like, we have to get rid of this man. And so the opposition increases to such an extent that they want to kill him. So that's my first point. I come on to accusation and opposition. 
See, this is the backdrop, intense and increasing opposition from particularly the religious leaders. And our passage opens up, so chapter 2, verse 18, our passage opens up by saying, some people came to Jesus and they said, why are John's disciples, how is it that John's disciples are fasting and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? On the surface, a pretty fair question, right? Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? Surely they should be. But what's behind it? So Judaism has, certainly had, had one key requirement for fasting. You had to fast once per year on the Day of Atonement. There were then three other types of fasting. So fasting to mourn historical tragedies, uh, fasting in the, in the situation of a national crisis, and then also for personal reasons. But these weren't required by God's law. But there were these three ty- uh, additional types. And yet the Pharisees fasted twice a week, every week. And so it's clear that fasting had become almost a, a kind of synonymous, this, this, a sign of piety. Fasting had become a sign of just how serious are you about God? How devoted are you? How close are you to God? And so what's being suggested here in this question is, why are your disciples not fasting? Are they not as serious about their religion? I I kind of read the accusation like this. Jesus, we know you've made some huge claims. You've just healed the paralytic man and you've essentially claimed to be God. Everyone's talking about you, but clearly you're not actually the real deal. Your disciples aren't even fasting. You're not the real deal. So my second point, the bridegroom is here. Jesus' response is amazing. I just love the way Jesus, he does this a number of times in his ministry and in his life. He responds to a challenge with just the most kind of piercing clarity. And the most, it's, it's sharp, it comes back but in a loving but stern way. And this is, this is no different. To a question about fasting, Jesus comes back with the total contrast, the image of a feast and celebration, a wedding. He says, so look down, how can the guests, verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? I don't know whether you kind of see this or not, but this response is like two miles deep. It's so deep. Jesus uses this term bridegroom deliberately to point to his true identity. John is, sorry, Mark is all about Jesus's identity. It's all about Jesus's identity. And this is, is, a, is a kind of signpost. Jesus gives a signpost. He did it when he healed the, paral- healed the paralytic as well. So you may know that the Son of Man has come and can forgive sins. The Son of Man was quite a a historic term as well. But bridegroom is perhaps even more striking. You see, running throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there's a very common metaphor and image for God and his relationship with his people, with Israel. And it's, it's the image of a marriage. God is the bridegroom and his people, Israel, are the bride. I've, I've noted a couple of um, references there. Take them away, look at them afterwards, but here, here they are. So Isaiah says... Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God rejoices over you. Then Jeremiah says, I remember the devotion of your youth, Israel. This is God talking. How as a bride you loved me. Return, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. 
And then perhaps most starkly in the book of Hosea, it's a small book here from, by a prophet Hosea, where Hosea is told to go and take a wife, and particularly an adulterous wife. And what follows in the book is, is the, the kind of the challenge that Hosea has around this wife. Um, and it's, it's to represent God's relationship with his people. He's the bridegroom, the husband of his people. And so when Jesus says, how can they fast when the bridegroom is here? He's pointing to a deep truth about himself. I don't think you and I, maybe you do, but I don't, when at the surface, grasp the enormity of this. I think I, to some extent, particularly if you've grown up as a Christian in a a Christian family, you become kind of desensitized and normalized and sterilized to the fact of Jesus being God. Yeah, of course he's God. Jesus is God, yeah. But put yourself there in that time. You're a Jew. You've got all the background of, of scripture growing up, this foundation. Yes, of course, God is the bridegroom of of Israel. I know that from my studies in the scripture. And here Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is here. So why would you be fasting if that's the case? Fasting is for times of yearning and longing and aching. You don't fast when the object of your fasting is with you. You rejoice and you celebrate. I wonder, have we lost the sense of joy in our relationship with God, with Jesus. We sang that song, the la 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 And I think a lot of us think, oh, it's a kid's song. And you kind of sing along, don't you? But actually, sing that song in kind of the early, early church, the Acts, when shortly after the crucifixion, they would have been dancing around and just leaping for joy. Have we lost some of the joy? Now, Jesus isn't saying fasting is wrong. So look down again, verse 20. He says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken and on that day they will fast. See, fasting isn't something, I don't think it's something we talk about much. Uh, And I'm not sure how much you do it personally. Uh, But Jesus says it has its place. I'm going to be honest. I, I don't have a huge amount of experience in fasting. But there are plenty of people in the church who do and can advise you more. But from my reading and preparation... It's clear fasting had a number of things that that it achieved. I think restraining our bodies, preparing for prayer, expressing brokenness and and sadness about something, particularly maybe our sin and and some of those aspects. And one I particularly connected with was as an aid to, as an intensification of our prayer. When we're praying, we're expressing deep longing and hungering for God to respond and answer. And fasting is about bringing the body in line as well. My mind and my body, we're both here in this prayer together. But there is another aspect uh, to the attitude of fasting that I think Jesus exposes here. And that's that fasting and many things can become a form of duty, can't they? To gain God's acceptance. Look down, do you see that in the question? So some people came and said, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not Jesus? I.e., you should be fasting. And if you were really serious about God, you would be fasting. So fasting had become an activity that was a measure of closeness to God. And I think it's possible for anything to become that, right? But in an instant, Jesus just 
just exposes the emptiness of that. My disciples aren't fasting because I'm here. The bridegroom of God is here in their very midst. They don't need to fast right now to get God's attention or to show how serious they are. They've got, they've got the bridegroom here. They can touch him. It's time to celebrate. So my third, my third point down on that sheet, old is incompatible with new. Let's try, this is the bit I've always struggled with. Let's try and make a bit of sense. Uh, so look down, verse 21. No one sews a patch of unstrung cloth onto an, an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old and the tear gets worse. Equally, no one pours new wine into old wineskins or the wine will burst the skins and both wine and skins will be ruined. I, I don't have a great deal of experience in sewing. Um, I'm not sure I've ever really done it and I certainly don't have much experience in wineskins. But what is clear is that the new cloth and the old garment are incompatible. They're incompatible. You take a new piece of cloth and you sew it onto an old garment that's been washed and it's, it's worn and it's old and it's kind of found its natural shape. You then wash it and the new cloth shrinks and contracts and rips because it hasn't done that, that, that shrinkage yet. New, incompatible with old. Similarly with a wineskin, and I had to look this up because I wasn't quite sure what a wineskin, how it worked. But a new wineskin is stretchy. It's... It, it's kind of got elasticity. So when you pour new wine in, the wine starts to ferment and gas is released. And so the wineskin stretches and it, it absorbs that and it copes with it. But an old wineskin is already stretched to the max. It's brittle. It's hard. So when you pour new wine into it, the wine ferments, it releases gas and it can't stretch anymore. And so bang, it pops and the wine's ruined. Now, I realise these images aren't super familiar, but they would have been for the day. But I do think the conclusion is pretty clear. It's pretty clear. New wine is incompatible with old wineskins. And new cloth is incompatible with an old garment. New is incompatible with old and vice versa. What What does Jesus mean? I think he means this. The old ways of the kingdom of Israel are not compatible with the new king in his kingdom. Sacrificing, effort, meeting a certain level of requirement and regulation. These things don't get us accepted by God and welcomed into his kingdom. Now Israel had lots of things and practices it had to do in the Old Testament. Uh, Things around purity and food and worship But it was actually never about that. I don't know if that comes as a surprise to you. It was actually never about that for God. So multiple times in the Old Testament, I could give more, but in Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, the Psalms, it's throughout. God says, I delight in mercy, not sacrifice. Do you think I delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in someone obeying the voice of God? And here in Mark, Jesus says, the old ways won't get you anywhere. They don't make you part of God's kingdom. They don't work. And in fact, they're destructive. If you add new wine to the old wineskins, they burst and they're both ruined. Seeking to please God by what we do is destructive. The new king's arrived. What's required is to recognise him. 
come to him, just as those disciples were doing. Who remembers the encounter with, uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus? It, it's in John 3. John 3.16 is that um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And just before that, in the beginning of John 3, Nicodemus comes and he's this Pharisee. So he's, he's a Pharisee, he's a church leader. And he comes in the middle of the night and he says, Jesus, we know you're a teacher from God. How else would you do these incredible things? And Jesus says to him, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. These two passages, I think, are pretty linked. They're pretty close. Unless you are complete, completely transformed, completely made new, so much so that it's as if you're being born again, you cannot see God's kingdom. So what, what does this mean for us? Let me finish with these. What does it mean for us, sitting here today, 2019, What does it mean for us? Let me ask you a few questions. Maybe you identify with with some of them. Are we still viewing our faith and salvation in old ways? And deep down, we still think what we do saves us. I I think it's a far easier place to fall into than we give it credit for. Incredibly dangerous. Is your faith... And what goes with it? The fact that you're here today, is it for show? Is it for show? But actually underneath, you don't know Jesus. Perhaps you battle feelings that you're just not good enough for God's kingdom. You've got things you do that make you feel close to God. But you always feel like you can't quite do enough. And you're letting him down. Maybe your challenge is more subtle. And I identify this. Uh, I have two young kids and I identify this coming on a Sunday. You're here, but you're just going through the motions. Jesus is just an addition onto what you already do. He fits neatly into a little box uh, of what you do. Are you joyful? Are you joyful? Have you recognised this as a celebration? Is there joy in your relationship with Jesus? We don't want to go through the motions. We don't want to go through the motions. Don't you long, i tell you what I long for, I long for myself, for real transformation. I want to be new. I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. I want to have joy, permanent joy that permeates everything I do. Where does transformation start? It starts by coming to Jesus just like the disciples did, spending time with him, listening to him. It starts with our relationship with him and what we think of him. Mark's gospel, all about identity of Jesus. Who do you say I am? Are you captivated by him? Are you convinced? Jesus, the supreme king and the servant. Wouldn't it be great, we're in Mark for the next few weeks, six weeks or so, Wouldn't it be great if all of us, including myself, used these weeks as a church to focus on Mark's gospel, absorb it, spend time with it, be in it, and come and meet the real Jesus, the tangible Jesus, and be captivated afresh. Amen.